Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sometimes needing new tires can catch us by surprise. That's why tire power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tirepower.com.au or call 13 21 91. This is your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And it's great to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Today we celebrate the life of a great Australian sportsman. His name is synonymous with the Melbourne Cup for all sorts of reasons. He rode two Melbourne Cup winners, but he, after that, became very familiar with the Melbourne Cup and the winning jockey for the Melbourne Cup. You know him, you've seen him, you've heard him. And I can't tell you what a thrill it is to have John Letts on my program. Letsy, hello, mate. Yeah, great to be here, Pete, and great to see you again. I haven't seen you for a couple of years. Yeah, but, it's uh, been a while. Yes, yeah, it's, it's like a reunion day. It is, and we've got a lot to catch up on. I don't think an hour is going to be enough, but uh, let's see what we can talk about. How are you, first of all? Well, that'll be the first question, Pete, the hour. You know how I talk. Yes. Yeah, so so if I say, how are you, that'll take up the that, first hour. That, 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 that'll <laughs> certainly fix it. That will certainly fix it, Pete. No, I'm really good, Pete. Yeah. I went through a, a, an ordinary stage there, as you know, Yeah. Uh, in 2013, but uh, everything's well above board now, and I'm really feeling good. I feel like I've got... Uh, the the old uh, the old urge back again to go back you know I love well I never ever got far away from racing mm. I was even though I wasn't well I was still kept right up with everything and because it's your passion and as you know it's uh, once it's in your blood it never leaves it never leaves you can say well I'm not going to be interested but you are interested you're all, all the time uh, you want to know what's going on and we've had some wonderful horses over the last few years even you know just to talk about them isn't it. It gives you through. We'll talk about your health battles a little bit later in the program. Okay, but Pete. Yep. what are you doing these days? What are you? What keeps you busy? Well, Pete, I've I've just come back. I I, I do a, a few trips around the countryside. Uh, I I help organise a lot of the country race meetings. Like we do Satuna a couple of times a year, and we do Port Augusta, and we've got places like Port Lincoln, and we've got all of those towns that need a little bit of help with uh, you know promotion. I work for another radio station, and I help promote them on the radio station. It's a it's a country circuit, it's a rural circuit which covers thousands of miles, actually kilometres, and goes right up, you know, nearly the New South Wales goes to New South Wales border, Northern Territory, right down the peninsula, comes into Adelaide, and we promote racing uh, from the grassroots. You know where to me is very, very important because that's where it all starts. We don't, mm. and as you know yourself, and you've been in the industry a long time, people don't start in the city. They start in the country, yep. and that's where it all comes from. And you'll get the perfect example at the moment with Darren Weir, won't you? Yeah. The perfect example. Started in the country, started small, and it's grown very, very big. But you never ever start at the top of the tree. 
you always start at the bottom and you work your way up. And that's where we try to help the country clubs all the time. We have a lot of success. We we taken some of the some of the country meetings, you know, from three or four hundred people up to a, a thousand or two, and uh, and we have functions every year. We have special guests come over. Uh, of course, we had Greg Miles, and then we've had Kevin Langby the last couple of years, and uh, Dave Foster, the ch- wood chopper from uh, over in uh, Tasmania. But yep. we, we have all of those celebrities, and we we have a two or three days here. We give a, a great package deal on these trips, and People just keep coming back. They love mm. it. They love it. I mean, it's it's a dirt track. You get six runners in a race, seven runners in a race. But just to give you an example, Pete, on, on Christmas Christmas Handicap Day at Sejuna, now I work outside. We don't have any – and I think this is a great idea that the Sejuna Race Club – and we got our heads together and thought it's a community hotel. Now, we've got to try and raise money for the community. And as you know, Sejuna, halfway across the desert yep. to, towards, towards Perth. And we work at that – I work outside – all day on the microphone from say from 12 to 4 uh, we don't have any outside broadcast of any race only back in the pavilion where the TAB it's a non-TAB but we have TAB for the for the uh, the big races but we have a couple of bookmakers I work outside all day so we're not getting any interruptions from racing outside of our own call of the races and I work outside there. We have Father Christmas comes in on his motorbike or he comes in on a steer or, you know, the kids are all catered for. We got we started with nothing and now we've got 14 corporate tents and we've got, you know, things like that. And this is what we're trying to get. We want these people to enjoy racing. They enjoy it, they love it, and they come back every year. And that's what's very important to us. Well, let's take it all the way back. Where did your love of horses and your transition into becoming a champion jockey, where did it all begin, let's see? Well, Pete, I wasn't real smart at school. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> I learnt later. I had to get streetwise. I came up in an area called Port Adelaide, uh, Brompton and Port Adelaide, which is two, um, could you say, um, well, you could call them slum areas, really. You mm. could call them. But, I mean, a lot of people come through that. And when I hear people say, oh, I come up in, in slum areas and, you know, it was hard early and that. But we've all had to go through that. You would have had to go through it. We all had to. And, and I mean, we pick ourselves up, don't we? Yeah. We pick ourselves up. I started off at a place called Brompton, which was which was a slum area just out of Adelaide. But it wasn't far out. But it wasn't an area. There was a big pug holes and dumps and, and it was it was more or less an industrial area, old houses, everything was, there was really nothing there. But now try and buy a block of land there, mm. you'd be, have to be a millionaire. <laughs> but I went to the Brompton Infant School and then I went to the Brompton Primary School. I didn't like either one. And then I was with my grandparents at the time and then they, they put me in at a place called the Good Shepherd around at Bowden, which is a higher class slum area. You know, I went up a grade. Yes. And, and, and after a month there, it was a Catholic school. And I wasn't a Catholic. And they found out. But my grandparents didn't know. I didn't know what I, you know, what religion I was. I knew I was Church of England, but I thought there was a church there, so it must be Church of England. Mm. So I went there and I, I had to leave there. And then I left there, and I went to uh, I went to uh, Seton Primary, then I uh, and then I went to Alberton, and then I went to Hendon, and then I went to a place called Lafever Tech, which is the, the last the last school on on the peninsula in Adelaide, and the next one is across the peninsula, which is across well across Port Vincent or somewhere, and I, I can't swim that good, and I thought well <laughs> I've got to stay here, you know. <laughs> Halfway through the year, Pete, I can remember I had it. And you know, you go back through your life and you think to yourself, who shall I thank where I got? Who shall I thank where I got? 
I was going through school. I was more or less lost, and I didn't have any direction. I was 13. I'd never been on a horse. wasn't interested. That, that racing to me was mum and uh, well, dad used to go to the races and we'd go and kick the footy or go up on our go-karts up in North Adelaide on, in the go-kart racing and and it was just something that uh, when 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 the opportunity come to go to school I thought oh, I'll go to school and I'll, I'll get, get an education I don't know where I'm going to go but mum said I'd like you to get a bank job and I thought well I went out and got a balaclava and a gun so yeah. I thought well that, 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 is, is that what she wants me to do? <laughs> but, that sounds like you yes. Yeah, yeah. But that didn't really happen no. but um, she she wanted me to work in a bank or something you know and I said to her I said well, mum I said I, I don't I wouldn't be able to see over the counter more or less over in a bank I was, I was four stone five and, and, and four foot five I mean I wasn't very big hmm. and uh she said, well, I'd like you to, you know, think about you getting a job. And Dad said, yeah, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I don't know. And, and I was halfway through the year and the teacher came up to me and Mr. Manning. And he was the guy that Pete, I would have loved to have thanked for, for my career, for my life. Um, he said, halfway through the year, he said, um, what are you going to do when you retire, or when you leave school? I said, well, Mr. Manning, I said, I'm going to write, aren't I? And I'd got through every year, but only just. And, and he said... Uh, yeah, you're going all right. I said, well, I've seen my, my uh, report card and it had all my results where I got an F for every, you know, subject. And he said, yeah, that's not real good. I said, that means fair, doesn't it? He said, no. He said, it's got another meaning. So <laughs> you know, he said, when do you turn 14? I said, July 28. Ah. He said, uh, we have the exams in September. He said, I think it'd uh, be good for you to look for a job. And I thought, well, Mr. Manning, what? You know, why should I look for a job? I want to get my intermediate. If I get the September, I'll get my intermediate, Pete, you know. And and he said, well, and I said, no, I've seen my exam, my report cards. I said, in those days, Peter, we used to have a desk and they would put like a briefcase between you and the other student alongside you. And you do your tests and you do it three times a year. And the teacher would take home and mark it. And I said, uh, well, aren't I going to good? He said, do I? no. He said, you know, the student alongside you. I said, yeah, smartest kid in the class. I said, always goes top, smartest kid. He said, yeah. He said, you were sitting alongside him for the last test. And I said, yes. He said, one question worried me. I said, uh, well, what one was that? And he said, well, there was a question, in what year did they discover such and such and so and so or whatever? And this student had put down, I don't know. Yes. And what did you write? I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> so, so They, they sort of got an idea that you might have been copying, let's see. Yes. He, he thought, yeah, well, it was helping me get through, Pete. But he said, you've got the perfect credentials for a jockey. He said, you're not really big and you're not really smart. I thought, hey. I thought, you know, the jockeys don't have to be small and, and not really Anyway, I, I got on a horse, Peter, and I can, I can honestly tell you, the first time I ever got on a horse, I'd, I'd never been interested. I'd, I'd, they didn't interest me at all. Hmm. I went up to the North Adelaide Park lands, the golf links, <clears throat> and they had a horse up there, and it was standing by the fence. And I went up with one of my mates, and I climbed up on the fence, and I dropped on this horse's back. And I didn't know that you had to have saddles, bridles. I'd seen it, but I thought horses would just, you just get on them, and nothing happens. You know? So you just hang onto the mane, eh? You just hang onto the mane. And I just sat on there, and my mate, he just gave it a whack, and, and, and it went off around the Paddock, not very fast, because, it, it, well, it couldn't have, because it was, I found out it had a foal about a month later, and it didn't go fast, but I thought I was flying. Mm. Anyway, when I came back, it was a funny thing, because I said, and my mate said, how'd you go? I said, well, I'm still on here. 
And he said, uh, what does it feel like? I said, you know, I said, I feel this is where I should be in my life. And from that day on, I went into a stable, and then, of course, I went on to be a jockey. And it was just incredible how, Pete, sometimes I think if I'd have had Mr Manning, say, four schools in instead of the seven, and he'd have told me that and I'd have taken no notice. But I was lucky. I was the last school. He was the only one that suggested it. Mm. I never got the never got the opportunity to go back and thank him. Uh, in that 13 years from the time I left school, or went in to be a jockey, I won a Melbourne Cup, mm. and I'd been Premier Jockey eight times. And in that in that 13 years, that man, who I never ever got to thank, he he, he found the path. And and I often say to kids when I talk to them at school, if you're sitting there and you don't like your teacher, even if you don't like him, I said I didn't like mine, but I said he's seen something in me that I didn't see. Yeah. I said, he might see something in you and listen to him or her because it made it was my path through life. Well, we've got a lot to thank Mr Manning for. Now, we're, said, go- yeah. we're going to take a break, but the one thing that you haven't learned in the time that I have been working with you, which is a long time now, when you come into a studio, let's see, turn your phone off. Now, I'm going to let you answer that phone is it ringing again? Oh, well, it was ringing again. <laughs> so we'll take a break. Okay, Pete. And then on the other side of the break, when Letsy's finished his phone call, we'll come back. John Letts is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. What a thrill it is to have John Letts as my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Let's see, we've got so much to cover with your career in the saddle, but it all started with an old steeplechaser called Port Walk, I believe. Was that your first ride? That was my first ride in the race, Pete. Yeah. Old steeplechaser. And, and i tell you who won a race on the, the, the late and great Teddy Byrne. Oh, Years yes. ago, one yeah. of Steeplechaser. Great jumps race. jockey. Great jumps jockey, Teddy Byrne. And he was, he was about a 1,200-pound horse, this horse. I can remember I, I, I was riding for... Uh, the stewards wouldn't give me my licence to ride in races because I was too small. Mm. And I went in to the jockey club and I said, look, I said, I'd like to get my licence to ride, you know, in races. And they said, well, we'll let you ride in the country for a year because you're too small and you're too light and you won't be able to handle these horses. And I said, uh, well, I said, that's OK. And they said, but no whip or no spurs. And I said, well, just let me carry the whip. And they said, uh, no, you can't carry the whip. Said, That's one of the rules. If you don't go along with that, you don't get your licence. I said, OK. So I thought, well, I'll have to ride without a whip. So, And I said, well, could you give me a reason that I can't use, take a whip? And they said, well, look, you're four stone five. They weighed me and they test your hands and see how your feet are and if you're going to grow. And uh, they, they, said, um, they said, well, put yourself in our position you turn for home, you get excited and you pull the whip. And I said, well, I won't get excited and pull the whip if I, when I turn for home if I look like winning or something. And they said, but if your weight, you pull that whip and there's any wind there that day, you're going to finish up on the horse behind you. <laughs> and I said, well, how could you argue with that, Pete? I couldn't argue, I couldn't argue with that. And yeah. So I had to go to, to the races. My first ride was Port Walk at a place called Snowtown. Mm. And uh, the morning of the race, like years ago, not like now, Pete, nowadays... The horses will go for a walk on race morning. But years ago, what the old-time trainers used to do, and Colin Hayes was one of the greats at, at the time, and we had Bart Cummings, of course. And uh, But training methods have changed over the years. And, and on, on the morning of the race, we always sprinted our horses up 200 metres, and that more or less clicked them on. The horses that knew that they sprinted up just went to the track, sprinted up a furlong, 
they knew that they were going to the races. And that was like turning the key on. Yeah. I'm going to run today. Anyway, this day I was having my first ride in the race. Well, I'm four stone five and I'm four foot five and I get to get the night before and I start packing my gear and I packed it about 10 times. I only had one ride. And I picked up, and he's a 3,000 metre horse and he's in a 1,000 metre race. And I, I didn't have any chance, you know. So, uh, before we get to the races, the boss said, take him around Colin Hayes' track. So I took him around Colin Hayes' track, which was at West Lakes. I t- he said, take him around and sprint him up a furlong. Well, I trotted him around the road. We used to work on the roads, and we didn't have so much traffic as we have now. I trotted him around, and I sprinted him up a furlong. Well, after two miles, he decided to stop <laughs> because he bolted <laughs> with me for two miles. And anyway, I took him home. I was certainly on my way home, and... I thought, gee, I've lost my first ride in the race today. I've, you know, really messed this up. And so I walked him back by the beach through the sand hills. When I got home, which was about three quarters of an hour later, and we was only 10 minutes, 15 minutes away, and I got, got back and I walked in the front gate and the boss was here and he said, oh, you took a bit of time. I said, oh, yeah. He said, how is he? I said, he's pretty keen. And I thought, I'm not going to lose the ride because of that. So anyway, I walked in and he said, oh, we'll put him in and we'll feed him and then we'll go up and we'll have our breakfast. We'll get away. We get up to Snowtown and I get there and the boss said, uh, you know, he said he's in a 1,000-metre race. Anyway, come home and ran third. And I thought, wow, this is good, you know. Anyway, then I couldn't pull him up. Mm. So I went out the straight, nearly round again, pulled him up, come back, and I got in the room. And then, of course, my boss come in. He said, uh, how do you think he went? I said, gee, boss. I said, you know, like for a three-miler, three, three I said, he went good in a 1,000 metres. He said, you think he could take another run today? And in those days, you didn't have to... Yeah. You could run twice. And I said, well, it wouldn't hurt him, boss. I said, he only went a furlong this morning. And I, then I started to add it up, you know, two <laughs> miles. It's been about and, 10 miles yeah, already. Yeah, yeah. And then a thousand metres and then another nearly a mile to pull him up. And, and I thought he's gone over three miles already. I said, but I like the feel of the silks, you know, and I just felt this is, <laughs> I love this, the, 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 the adrenaline was flowing. He said, I think I'll run him in the last race. And I said, uh, yeah, how far is that? He said, a mile a quarter. And they started at the top of the straight. I said, oh, I said, it shouldn't hurt him, boss. And uh, anyway, he said, no, we'll run him again. So he's legging me up in the mounting yard, and there's, there's only four of us in it. As he's legging me up, I'm going out onto the track. The clack of the course come along, and he grabbed him by the bridle. And he said, uh, I'll take you to the barrier. I said, no, look, he's all right. I said, he's out one of our horses. I said, and I know him. And in those days, Pete, all of the clerk of the courses and the starters and that, a lot of them were voluntary. They were farmers, and they were people that lived in that town. And he, he, was, he was a farmer, a dairy farmer. And he looked at me and he grabbed hold of the horse's bridle. He said, I seen you here earlier today, son. He said, no, I think I'll take you to the barrier. So he took me down to the barrier. So my instructions were, third on the fence, when you get to the half mile, go for it. You've got a seven pound claim and make the other three chase you. So anyway, he told me all the instructions. Never told the horse because the horse actually wasn't listening. Mm. And They really yeah, do. Yeah, they, they really do. And we went out the straight, Pete, and I was 10 lengths in front. And I'm going, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, another lap. It's another lap. And anyway, I thought, if I can get to the half mile, I'll be happy because I reckon he'll drop dead before then. <laughs> and anyway, we get down the back and and we get, and we there's a voice there and, it, and it's I'm on the fence in front. And I couldn't stop him. And there's a voice come up and he said, get off that fence, son. So I got off the rail, you know. Then there was another voice come up, get back on that rail. So I went back on the rail. So then the first voice was back there again, get off that rail. So I got off the rail. And then the other voice came back and get back on that rail. So I went back on the rail. So this went on till the end of the race. And I won the race, 33 to 1 in the field of four. And as I went over the line, I thought, wow. I said, my first winner. And I looked across, and the guy that I beat was Jimmy Johnson. 
And I thought, my idol. Yeah. And I thought, I don't care if I never have another ride in a race. I've beaten my idol, Jimmy Johnson, JJ. And then I couldn't pull him up. So down the back straight I go again. And all of a sudden, out on the outside of the track, there was a guy on a grey horse with a red coat, a black hat. He gallops over, grabs the bridle, looked at me. I looked at him. He said, I thought you'd be past here in a minute. And he took me back to the mounting yard. So when I get back in there, JJ's there, and I'm sitting in there, and there's only four of us to get changed after the last. And Jimmy said, uh, you know why he won the last race? I said, uh, no, I don't, Mr. Johnson. He said, uh, did you hear that bloke tell you to get off the rail down the back? I said, yeah. He said, Peter Kelly. I said, hey? I said, did you hear the bloke tell you to get back on? I said, yes. He said, that was me. And I said, well, how did that help me sort of win the race? He said, put yourself in our position. Here's a kid on a 1,000-pound or more horse, kid four stone. I said, the last half mile of that race, he said, you were off the fence, on the fence, off the fence, on the fence. He said, we didn't know what side of you to go. And so <laughs> I reckon I won my first race by default. But me and JJ, we've been mates. Jimmy's 88 now. Yeah. And we've been the greatest of mates for so many, he helped me so much, Pete. I, I always put him as part of my success in racing. Yeah. Jimmy Johnson. Now, dear old Port Walk has taken up a fair bit of our time. Yes. But there are a couple of other races that I do want to get to. Okay. One was in 1972. Yes. It was at Flemington. It was mm. on the first Tuesday in November. How did you come to get the ride on Piping Lane? Well, Pete, in 68, I won the Adelaide Cup on Rain Lover. And I came Speaking in. Speaking of Jimmy Johnson. Say, who yeah, Jay, yeah. Won the Melbourne Cup the same year and I then keep, won it again. Yeah, I keep telling him that. I said, I should have won four and you should have won. <laughs> yeah. you, you should have only won one. And he said, look in the record book. Yeah. <laughs> That's JJ. Um, but 68, I come in and Graham Hegney said, you're riding this horse in, in the Melbourne Cup in November. Well, every jockey's dream is to win a Melbourne Cup. My dream was to ride in it. And I thought, gee, I've got a live chance here, you know. And about a month or so later, Graham took ill. And we lost the horse to Mickey Robins. Of course, Jimmy was his rider. Mm. And I had to watch him win the Melbourne Cup by eight lengths. And then he won it a year later, of course, which is the greatest race I've ever seen. That stirring battle with all Allsop. Yeah. And I thought, you know, after that, I thought it'll never happen. I was going to Gawler races on a Wednesday. And, of course, most jockeys will tell you, not nowadays, but those days we race Saturday and Wednesday. Every Saturday your phone would ring hot. Every Wednesday your phone would ring hot. But the other days of the week, no one knew that you were alive. And the phone rang, and I, I was just going out to the Gawler races. And I, I thought, I'll answer that. And I answered the phone. There was a guy on the other end of the phone, a gentleman on the other end of the phone. He said, is that John Letts? I said, yes. He said, have you got a ride in the Melbourne Cup next week? And this was six days away. And I said, um, no, as a matter of fact, I haven't taken one yet. I'm waiting on Bart Cummings, Tommy, Tommy Smith or Colin Hayes to ring me. I knew they weren't going to ring. And then I started to think, now, which group of my mates get out on Tuesday night and drink? Yeah. Because I thought, it's one of them. And then he said, oh, look, he said, uh, he said we've got a ride for you in the Melbourne Cup. And I said, uh, oh, and I thought, this guy's serious. And I said, what's the horse? He said, Piping Lane. And I said, oh, yeah. He said, you heard of him? I said, yes. I'd never heard of him. Mm. And he said, George Hanlon's got him. He's owned in Tasmania. He's a Tasmanian horse. George Hanlon's got him, and he, he'd like you to ride him. I said, okay, I'll be there. Because, Pete, the reason I took the ride, he was 80 to 1 chance, but the reason I took the ride was I wanted to ride in the Melbourne Cup. Mm. And that was my ambition. To win it was pie in the sky, but to ride in it was what I wanted. At the end of my riding career, I wonder if anyone ever said to me, did you ever ride in a Melbourne Cup? I wanted to be able to say yes. Mm. Now, I want to ask you about that day. So this is the realisation of a dream. You're riding in the Melbourne Cup. Yes. You come out before the race. You go into the mounting yard. George has got, what, three runners in the race? Yes. What were his instructions to you? None. I Why? Never, I never met him. He didn't know me. The owner didn't know me. And I just stood there. And, you know, it's true, this is true, Pete. When we, when we come out the mounting yard, in, into the mounting yard, you know, they always say, uh, get mounted riders. 
and Piping Lane pulled up right there in front of me, number 16. And that was what I seen of Piping Lane. I got on his back. I never seen the front of him. Never seen the back of him. I got on his back, and there was a little girl strapping him. And I said, how does this horse race? And she said, I said, does he race front, back, in the middle, or wherever? She said, I don't know. She said, well, you better ride him properly. And that was my instructions. You better ride him properly. <laughs> Good instructions. <laughs> but you know, Pete, really, I think that's what won the race for me. Yeah. Because when I went there, I'd never ridden at Flemington or any over there, hmm. over in any of those courses. Now, didn't and, you talk to Harry White before the race? Yeah, and I, I, yeah, he, he told you what to do. And what did he say to do? Well, Harry said to me, I went over, because Harry had ridden in Adelaide and Roy had ridden in ha- Adelaide, and I said, uh, Harry, I said, how do you ride Flemington? Harry said, um, oh, just go to sleep for the first mile and a half, he said, and then when you get to Chiquita Lodge, he said, get into the race, he said, that's where we get busy. Now, Chiquita Lodge is a very famous racing stable, uh, but you I, didn't know that, did you? I, I thought it was a 30-storey high <laughs> motel at the top, of, uh, around about the back of the track there somewhere. I didn't know where it was. I didn't even didn't even know of Chiquita Lodge. So you get to the six, you're looking around for this 30-storey high building, and you can't find it, can't and you think, it. what do I do now? So there was another plan that you yes. evolved at that stage, wasn't there? There was a grey horse in the race. That's right. The only grey in the race was a horse called uh, Gunsend. The Gundawindi Grey. He was a great horse, and, and he drew barrier 10. I went in the gate 11, and I thought, Roy Higgins has won a couple of these red-handed light fingers. Wherever Roy goes, I'll be a step behind him because he knows the way around here. I don't know my way around here. And I was sitting alongside Neville Voigt, and he was on Hayburner. And I looked across at Neville. I said, what do you think, Nev? He said, not much. And I said, you got a chance? He said, no. Nah. And I said, these are stable mates. You know, just to get the conversation before they loaded the last horse. He said, uh, Oh, yeah. He said, I don't think you've got much of a chance either. He said, but look, he said, it's a good race to ride in. He said, have a good ride. And that's what he said. And I thought, when that grey horse jumps out the barrier, I'm going to be, every step of the way, I'm going to be on him. You know, where Higgs goes, I go. Anyway, the first time in his life, Gunsin missed the jump, and I'm in front of him. (laughs) And I thought, please, Roy, don't have a plan to follow me, because I don't know where I'm going. And these are stories out of Melbourne Cups, Pete. I went Mm. down the straight. And to describe it, the roar the first time, I'd ridden in front of 30,000 people, 20,000. There's 110 that day. Went down the straight. Then it all goes quiet down the back, and, you, and, and, and there's not much said except, you know, about your breeding and why you shouldn't be there and, you know, all of these sort of things. The jockeys have a wonderful conversation, but it's not very friendly. Yes. But then it all starts again when you come into the straight. And the American jockey, Angel Cadero Jr., who I rode with in America later after I won the Melbourne Cup, which opened so many doors for me, I, Angel said to me, when you, when, you, when you jump the gate, he said, do you hit the wall? And I said, hit the wall? I said, what's a wall? And he said, the crowd, the roar of the crowd is so loud, it's like a wall. It happens in the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. And he said, and then when you turn for home, he said, it happens again. It happened to me that day. Mm. Happened, I hit the wall, then I hit the wall again. The two parts of the race where it's so desperate is the first bit past the Atlas Rate, where you're yeah. trying to get a spot, and then when you get round about where, where we, I found out now with Chiquita Lodge, where he's now, that's the second part, mm. and that's where it gets interesting again. And when you turn for home, you just think you've got three furlongs to glory, you know, and the, the wall hits you again. Bang. That's where history is made, that last 600 metres. So you make history. Roy finished third on Gunsind. Yes. And there was Stormy Seas and Double Irish Double in that Irish, race yeah. as well, yeah. I remember. But this little kid who wanted to ride in the Melbourne Cup has all of a sudden won the Melbourne Cup. Won the Melbourne Cup. So you go around the back of the race course. Yep. And that's probably the last moments of solitude that you're going to have when you're pulling up. It was, Pete. What are you yeah. thinking? Well, we didn't have the interviews then, of course. No. And I went back into the jockey's room and... Billy Cook was there. P. 
Peter's father, and Billy had won a couple of Melbourne Cups. And I went in, and of course, everybody wants you. And you know the press. I mean, around the winner, there's 20 or 30 press. Around the second horse, there's the owner and trainer. Yeah. But the winner, there's only one spot in a Melbourne Cup, and that's first. I'd never experienced anything like this. And they grabbed me, and they, and they said, you know, let's see, you know, all of a sudden it was, let's see, can we have you straight away for the interviews? I said, yeah, sure. I said, I've just got to go and weigh in, make sure there's no protest. And they said, you know, can we, straight away we can have you. I said, yeah. They said, you haven't got any more rides? I said, uh, no. I said, I didn't take any more. I wanted to be free for the, inv- you know, the interviews. The presentation. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was only kidding them. <laughs> we're going to take a break, and then we're going to talk about the other Melbourne Cup. Yep. But we are also going to talk about what happened between those two Melbourne Cups, where your race riding career was almost done and dusted. John Letts is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. John Letts is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Let's see, we talked about that great day with Piping Lane, that first Melbourne Cup. A second Melbourne Cup was going to come, but in between, you nearly rode in your last race. What happened? Yeah, I, I did, Pete. I actually, um, I was at Gawler, and it was the last race of the day. And, you know, sometimes I, I, I had a few falls in my time, of course. Every jockey has falls. And uh, I was just sitting behind the leader, third on the fence, and the horse in front dropped dead. And six of us went down. And I was the only one that got injured, and uh, I'd fractured my neck, and was told that I was uh, quadriplegic. And then I went into the, they took me to the hospital, of course, the Queen, uh, the Royal Adelaide, and they put me up there in a paraplegic ward, and they told, rang my mother and my wife and said that I was a uh, quadriplegic. I had no feeling in my hands and feet. I did, I couldn't feel it because I was unconscious, but. When I got there, my mother actually held my hand and I squeezed her hand and she said, he squeezed my hand and they said, well, he's definitely going to be paraplegic, you know. Anyway, a couple of days later, and I don't think I'll ever forget this, Pete, because I woke up and all, all the skin had been taken off my face and I had dirt under my nails and that, you know, where I'd fallen onto the track and that. And I looked up and there's Sophie Adamson was the, the, the sister in the hospital and she was always back me when I was riding. And I looked up and, and I came came to and, and, and she said, oh, Johnny, she said, I'm so happy you picked my ward to come to. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I, I didn't have a choice and I didn't want to be in a hospital, Pete. No. But you just realise, Pete, sometimes in your life how lucky you can be. I guess everything after that is a bonus. And you had some it great was. moments along the way. Certainly. You won the Victoria Derby on Galena Boy. Yes. Um, Raffendale in the Epsom. Yeah. There was, I think, Ming Dynasty in the Australian Cup. Australian Cup. Uh, Shaney Walk was another one. He was a spring champion. Yeah. He was another horse. He was a good horse too. And then 1980 yeah. for Robert Sangster, Belldale Ball. Yeah. And one of the most celebrated rides in the Melbourne Cup history mm-hmm. because you took the race on yep. as you went down the riverside that day. I took it on, Pete. It was, you know, sometimes when you want to thank someone, like Johnny Hawkes is, was, was more or less, he, he didn't know it, but he was actually the reason that I, I won my second Melbourne Cup because I rode a horse called um, uh, Tollhurst that won the Lynn Lithgow and, 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 and I went back to Adelaide. I was riding in Adelaide and, and John rang me and said, look, he said, uh, I want you to come back and ride Tollhurst in the Cox Plate. And I said, oh, John, I don't want to ride him. He said, uh, well, if you don't ride him in the Cox Plate, he said, the owner said, whoever rides him in the Cox Plate rides Toll Trees in the Doncaster. I thought, oh, oh I've got to go, you know. I have to go. So I went over, and when I in the mounting yard, Frankie Ryan, I said to Frankie, this horse will never get a mile and a quarter. Frankie said, you'll never hold him. 
and I can remember that Cox Plate because I was going out the straight and I was I was actually pushing Kingston Town along. I couldn't stop him, and he was just between Kingston Town's back legs, and I was pushing Kingston Town along, and I thought, oh. And while I was there, Colin Hayes asked me to ride a horse in the Mooney Valley Cup, and I went out and I'd never heard of Bill Ball. Just before I went out, she stubbed her toe and moved her shoe back in the mounting yard, and and the nail went into her hoof, and there was a spot of blood come out. And anyway, the, the strapper said, oh, look, she shifted her shoe. So I jumped off her. Anyway, Colin Hayes came over and said, what's the matter? And I said, oh, I shifted her shoe. So the vet came over and said, we'll have to scratch the horse, Colin. And Colin said, what say we let John take it at the barrack because there was a spot of blood. And when there's blood, it means that it's more or less, it, it hits soft tissue, not bone or anything, mm. done any damage. So anyway, he said, take it to the barrier. And if you get her there, John, and she's not right, scratch her. So I went round to the barrier on this horse. I can't remember her name. But when I got round there, she was okay. Good as gold. So we jumped out the barrier and, and she drew gate one or two or whatever and she had a nice run behind the two leaders and the horse outside the leader was in Robert Sanks's colours. And when we put up after the race, I ran last and Higgs rode Bildale Ball. And I said to Colin Hayes, I said, what was that horse you had outside the leader that ran fourth? He said, oh, it's a horse called Bildale Ball. He said, he hasn't done much. And I said, uh, you got him in the Melbourne Cup? And he said, uh, yeah, but he said, you don't want to ride him. He said, I've got a horse called Gay Trebos, won four out of his last five or something. He said, ride him. I said, no, I'll ride that horse. And, you know, sometimes, Pete, you think someone up there is looking after you. Mm. And I said, if I don't ride him, CS, I'm going to ride Love Bandit. And he said, I'm telling you, this horse pretty good horse, and he can, he can win the Melbourne Cup. So, anyhow, I went back to Adelaide. Next morning, I get a phone call from one of the press guys. What one are you going to ride? I said, Bill Ball. If it's not him, it's going to be Love Bandit. Anyway, CS said, you're picking the wrong one. So, anyway, Bill Dole Ball then, because when I get in the mounting yard, or the night that I ran him and he ran second behind Bohemian Grove on the Saturday, and he didn't, I didn't give him a hard run because he, I knew he was in on the Tuesday, but Bohemian Grove beat me pretty easily. And Robert Sanks came up to me after the race, and he said, because uh, they all went to the winner, and he came up, he said, what did you think of uh, what do you think of the cup on Tuesday? I said, you win the cup Tuesday. He said, yeah, Bohemian Grove. He said, very impressive. I said, no. I said, this horse will beat him over two miles Tuesday. And then we went upstairs, and, of course, you were up there as well, gate 22. Mm. And then the press guys, you know, oh, you've declared this to Robert Sanks, and let's see, now you've opened your trap, and, you know, how are you going to get out of this? There's going to be some pressure. I said, there's no pressure. I said, I'll just blame the bad barrier. So I went out there with a bad barrier, excuse, before I, before the race started. So we went out the straight, and, and you know, I knew the two leaders, Bohemian Graham and, and Love Bannock, weren't leaders, so I didn't have to take the lead too quickly. We went past the winning post, went over the crossing, you know, there, the 2000. Yeah. And I said, well, and he's a stallion, five-year-old stallion, and he had blinkers. And I said to CS before I went out, I said, how do you want me to ride him? He said, you told me you'll win. You ride him your way. I said, I'm going to lead on this horse. He said, oh. I said, he said, but you told me. I said, all right. So anyway, at the crossing, I went to the front. It's the only time in the race that I had a worry because he used to go off the track there. And I just give him one little hit with a spur. And he, he just straightened up. And when I turned for home, I hadn't let him go. And I looked around, just a quick look. I was three lengths in front. Mm. And he hadn't, I hadn't let him out. Three furlongs from home in the Melbourne Cup in 1980, I said to myself, I've won my second Melbourne Cup. And he felt that good. I reckon he could have gone round again. He just felt so good. And we went over the line. And, of course, to me, Peter, that was... The first one was great. But the second one to be involved with, at that stage, as you know, Robert Sanks, the richest owner in the world. Yeah. Colin Hayes, his first Melbourne Cup. Adelaide boy, Adelaide trainer, international owner. 
I thought, this is the pinnacle. This is it. Let's take our last break, Letsy, and then we'll come back. And a couple of other little things I want to talk to you about. One little horse didn't win a Melbourne Cup, but he was very dear to you. His name was Banjo. He certainly was. On the other side of the break, John Letts, we'll wrap it up with Letsy. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, with 23 chapels across Victoria and online at tobinbrothers.com.au. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Our final segment with John Letts on This Is Your Sporting Life. Let's see, we mentioned Banjo. Dear old Banjo. He was part of your life, wasn't he? He was so much, Pete, a part of my life. You know, in 2013 when I, I retired because I was diagnosed with prostate cancer and, you know, you boys were the only ones in the... anyone that knew. Yeah. Only my family, immediate family knew. You and Bruce and the boys knew that I was having problems and I had prostate cancer, which I'm... Now I'm 100% clear of. Uh, Banjo, you know, he came along as a three-year-old, Pete. He, 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 he died when he was, what, 25 or 26. Yeah. First time I met him, Johnny Patterson had him, and his name was Trewarick Impulse. Mm. And, of course, he knew you because you used to always come in the mountain yard with, with apple. apples for yeah. him, didn't you? Yeah. And he always knew you. He'd see you coming. And the he'd head stick his head up. up, yeah. Yeah, he'd pick his head up and give you... And I remember the last... I think it was the last year that I was on bands uh, before I had to retire. He, didn't he slobber all over you? Oh, several times he did that. <laughs> he slobbered all over your suit. <laughs> I thought, I don't want the, Peter to see that. The wardrobe people. People did not like Banjo, but I loved him, and so did you. Everybody loved him, didn't yeah. they? And, you know, when I first met him, he, he had a few little tricky traits, but he was always... Uh, and, you know, there was only two people that ever stayed on his back, never got thrown off, and that was uh, Craig Williams and Michelle Payne. All the other apprentices at the apprentice school, he threw them off. Hmm. Pato told me, he said, they were the only two that ever stayed on him. He said, I don't know why, but he said, I don't... He, he, he picked two of them, and that was the two that he picked that he wasn't going to throw off. He didn't throw me off one day. I rode him in and the mounting yard at Flemington. Remember right. that day? Yes, and, I remember that. Uh, you said, righto, hop on him, and you led Get me around him. the yep. mounting, ro- yeah, yeah, yeah. mounting yard at Flemington. <laughs> Richard Friedman was there. He said, it looked like a spider riding a fly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Peter, it all started from when he was three. And, and I, th- I think he was 25 or 28. I'm not sure. But Pato, Pato always got mixed up with his age. You know what yeah. Pato was like. He was no good with figures. Yeah. Um, uh, but when, when, when I started riding him, and, and, and I always got on well with him because I knew Pato used him when I wasn't there. And I'd only see him, like, uh, November, uh, October, through the Cox Plate there, and, and November, and then also March for the Australian Cup. Hmm. And I wouldn't see him any of the other time of the year. But I knew Pato would use him a bit. Because the ladies that looked after him down at Geelong loved him, and Pato would turn him out for a spell down there. Anyway, Pato used to always be number one clerk of the course, as he had been for over 40 years, as bringing the horses in after the Melbourne Cup. He'd always bring the winner in, you know, down the race. Yep. Anyway, Pato, I, I, I worked Banjo out, because as soon as you were in the mounting yard, and they, you know, they blew the... He knew that that was the signal for him to go out on the track when Pato was riding him, and he wanted to be first onto the track. It didn't matter what race it was, he wanted to be number one. And the guys on the gate had it worked out that as soon as that trumpet went, they'd open the gate and I'd go straight out. Mm. Anyway, a couple of the other riders that rode him said he's not going to do it. They didn't have much success. One he bolted with, another one he reared over the back, the other one he wouldn't go. But I used to let him do his thing. And we'd canter down the walkway to Glory, you know, where we go out on amongst the, the roses, yeah, yeah. yeah, amongst the roses. We go, you know, the pathway to Glory. I always call that. And we'd go down there, and Banjo get out on the track, and he, he actually wasn't supposed to be going out first, but 
it was the best way to control him. Yeah. And as soon as I went out there, Flemington closed. They shut all the gates and no one was allowed across the track. Well, can you imagine the Melbourne Cup? I mean, they, they, they bring him in the mounting yard 22 minutes or something, and 20 minutes before the race, they blow this trumpet. So he wants to go out. Mm. So 20 minutes before the Melbourne Cups, no one's allowed across the track at Flemington. <laughs> and Banjo was a cause of that. Yeah. And I used to go, but I never ever told anyone. I thought, I hope the stewards don't ever find out. Mm. Because if they do find out, they'll say to me, you keep him back there. And I thought, he don't want to be held back. He, yeah. he, he's a little star. He knows how good he is. And, you know, he was honoured that time. Remember we had the presentation yep. in the mounting yard for Bet. That's never been done. Mm. Um, he won the, the Stock Horse of the Year. A lady rang me from Scone, said, your horse has got uh, Stock Horse of the Year. I said, he's not mine. He's Johnny Patterson. She said, Terwarrick Impulse. I said, yes, but we know him as Banjo because I couldn't pronounce Terwarrick Impulse that early days. And I said to Pato, I said, look, I said, Pato, I said, I'm not going to tell people. They keep asking me the name of my pony. And I said, he's a, he's a stock horse. And they, and they said, what's his name? I said, something, I don't know. I said, Pato, I said, we're changing it to Banjo. It'll be Banjo Patterson. Yeah, and the public just used to love him. How many photos did he have taken? Yeah, yeah. He and Sub-Zero at the races were the two famous horses. Ones, We're just about out of time, but I remember ringing you on the day that we lost Banch with Collie. Yeah. And it was like you'd lost a family member. He was. He was yeah. part of me. He was a very much a part of me. And I must really thank thank uh, Andrew um, Clark from Champions, you know, the re- retired champion from the Legends. Yeah. Andrew actually rang me and said, John, we'd love to bury him at the Legends. Hmm. Well, Pato had organised that he'd be buried in his little paddock at Geelong with his headstone. Uh, they've got a plaque out at uh, Legends with his name on it. Yeah. And Pete, you know, I think it would have been fitting because I would have loved him to have gone out there. See, all of those horses, he was a part of them, wasn't he? Yeah. He brought them all in. Even like horses didn't win a Melbourne Cup, Apache Cat and those horses. He brought all of those champions in. Mm-hmm. I thought, wouldn't it have been great if we could have buried him amongst, in the years to come, we can say they're all there. Yeah. There, there is the cemetery of all the champs and the little fella that, he was only a little chap, but he was a big, he was little, but he was big, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, big in personality. Big in personality. Big in reputation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Sad for me to, to lose him, Pete. Yeah. Because it was going to be, when he went, I was going to go anyway. Yeah. But I went, and then six months later, he sort of went. But, um, yeah. you know, it was sad for me. I wish we had more time, Letsy, because so there's so I, much Pete. more to talk about. Uh, when I said at the start of the program that I was going to ask you one question, and that would probably do, I think I got two in. <laughs> but it, Peter. you've been a great mate for a long <laughs> yeah, time. A long you've been time, uh, a legend in Australian racing. Your partnership with Banjo is something I'll never forget, and I'll never forget those two Melbourne Cups, and I'm so glad that you are fighting fit now. Yeah, I'm back on track, Pete, and I'm really getting back into everything I used to do. John Letts joining us for a very special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral celebrating lives and we'll be back to celebrate another life next week at the same time right here on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi-finals. all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.